Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit podcast with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dale Pinnock. He is a nutrition expert, he is a fellow podcaster, and he's a best-selling author, and he is a really trustworthy voice on all things nutrition. We went on an incredible deep dive into the power of nutrition to heal. We covered all sorts of topics. We talked about vascular disease. We talked about general health. We talked about diet fads. I think you're going to find this a really fascinating one. So I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. And do let us know what you think. Hello, Dale. How you doing? I am doing really well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, good. It's it's, it's nice to uh, be able to join you on this. Yes, we spoke not that long ago on your podcast, didn't we? I know, I know. It seems to be kind of sitting here having these conversations on these gadgets. Oh, but I love it. I think, you know, podcasting is a lovely way to let people free flow and share their knowledge and share some information and also just feel a bit more free to get away from sound bites and get into the nuance yeah. and uh, what's really important, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. I think one of one of the big problems that we have at the minute is because uh, everyone's pushed for time, and especially if you you know if you appear on a program or something, you've only got a couple of minutes, and you've got to try and get everything in in that short space of time, and you don't often have the opportunity to really kind of go down the rabbit hole and and get into the kind of depth that, that, that this subject truly deserves. Yeah, and you've been on a lot of TV things, haven't you, Dale? You've been in all sorts of I'll TV pop up shows. now and again. Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit <laughs> quiet during the pandemic, but um, yeah, often sort of pop up with Holly and Phil quite often, or Lorraine, or doing some bits with the BBC. And I, I co-present a show on ITV as well called Eat Shop Save. Um, we're in our fifth year, so yeah, do bits and bobs. Yeah, and I think what's nice about that is that you can reach more people. But when you chat on a podcast, you can get down into those interesting weeds of nutrition a little yes. bit more. And and I know you've been doing this for so long. You've got over 26 years working in the nutrition industry, studying yeah. the subject to a degree level, postgraduate level. And, you know, from my understanding, from knowing your work, you've absolutely dedicated your life to giving the facts behind what sometimes is quite confusing around nutrition. Um, and so I suppose just to start us off, in case any of our audience doesn't know who you are, it would be lovely for you to share a little bit about why why you decided to study this in the first place. What gave you this passion? Yes. Well, so like you said, 26 years in the industry. I mean, I've been into it since... I actually first started getting into, into nutrition before I kind of moved into the career around around about 1992. I was 15 years old at the time. Basically, from, from the age of about 10 or 11, I started getting quite bad acne. It was the summer of leaving primary school to go up to secondary school. That time in your life when you just start to become self-aware in relation to your peers. And all of a sudden, I started breaking out and uh, looked like a second-hand dartboard. It wasn't good. It's cruel, isn't it? Puberty is very cruel. <laughs> it is. It is. All I'll say, thank God the internet didn't exist back then. That's all I can say, because that would have been savage. But, oh, I know. I, you know, I went to so many different practitioners. I, you know, went to different doctors and dermatologists, and I had all the usual things like uh, oxytetracycline and Dallasin tea. I don't know if you remember that, which is like a Pritt stick that you all over the all over the area. I do. And nothing made a huge amount of difference. I mean, there was there was some marginal relief from from the issue, but nothing particularly changed anything drastically. And I got to about fifteen years old, so this was yeah, nineteen ninety two. Sat around at my friend's house one night, feeling sorry for myself, you know, feeling terrible because of the way that I looked. And my friend's mum was like, look, unless you change what's going on on the inside, 
nothing's going to change on the outside. And, um, you know, I was kind of like, okay, whatever, 15-year-old boy. I was like, yeah, if you say so. But she lent me this book, and it was a book called um, a book called Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond. Obviously, you look back at it now, and it it's potentially a little bit faddy. But back then, that was my first introduction to um, the whole field of nutrition. And I, I was willing to try anything. So I read this thing cover to cover in a weekend, and boom, there was the light bulb moment. I, I actually for the first time realized that we can from you know to one extent or another actively engage in our own healthcare and that that planted the seed and at that point i i <laughs> over the years i've tried pretty much every diet you could possibly imagine um macrobiotic ayurvedic raw food diets ketogenic all, all sorts of different things and used myself as a guinea pig i read over a thousand books in a very short space of time and at that time, I'd, I'd mucked about at school. I wasn't particularly academically minded, but finally, I found something that, that actually ignited me and actually actually gave me a feeling of passion and purpose. And yeah, I got to around about twenty two, twenty three, and I was like, nothing else is captivating me in this way. I need to make a career out of this. And. Um, no, I was a bit a little bit younger than that, like nineteen twenty actually, and decided. To go to university. I, I went and did my first degree in human nutrition, then did a, a second degree in herbal medicine. Not that I wanted to be a herbalist, but I wanted to understand more about um, phytochemistry, like the actual study of active chemicals in plants that can deliver potentially pharmacological activities. And those same chemicals that are in the, the common medicinal plants, you know, like your echinaceas and ginkgos and those kind of things, are also pleasant, pleasant, present in culinary plants as well. The only real yeah. difference between the two is this context of application. And then I did a postgraduate degree in nutritional medicine at Surrey. And then for all of my life, I've been cooking. I've always been um, an enthusiastic eater, I think is uh, one way of putting it. And I just merged the two things together. It just seems such a, an obvious delivery system for the information. So you know, rather than standing in front of people and just giving a PowerPoint presentation, I Eat more of this, eat less of that. I mean, it's dull. It's, it's great if you're, you know, if you're in a lecture hall, but for the average person on the street, it just doesn't do anything. But if you can put that information into the context of actually preparing a recipe, saying, look, this is the science, this is how to apply it in your day-to-day life, this is how you make use of it, then all of a sudden it's a very, very different thing. Yeah, I love it. I love hearing you talk about it. Your passion for this absolutely shines through. Um, it makes so much sense that your Instagram, Monica, is the medicinal chef because yes. you have come to appreciate that, you know, food can be an amazing experience psychologically, physically, emotionally, on many different levels, but also the biochemistry of foods. You really have sort of delved deep into that research. And uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what that meant to you and why you decided to have your name as the medicinal chef. Well, I mean, the, the title of the medicinal chef was deliberately provocative. I mean, especially at the time, uh, because I did want people to think differently about their food. It, it was becoming really blatantly obvious around about that kind of time. This was in the early noughties, so about 2001, 2002, when I, when I first took on that name, The Medicinal Chef, it was becoming more and more obvious that our food was more than just fuel, that it, it was becoming a very valid and very effective part of the therapeutic spectrum. I mean, I've never been in the alternative crowd. You know, I need, I need to really drive that home because, you know, obviously there's a lot of scrutiny about this kind of stuff at the minute. I've never been of the alternative mindset. 
I've never been just like, oh, you've been hit by a bus. Have some broccoli. You'll be fine. It's, you know, never had that, <laughs> that, that kind of attitude at all. It's like, you know, if you need drugs, you need drugs. But that doesn't mean to say that you're passive in the process. There's things that you can do every single day to play a role in your own health outcomes. And I think that's, that's crystal clear at the minute. What people overlooked for such a long time is that the food that we eat directly influences and potentially manipulates the internal biochemical terrain of our body. You know, mm. I mean, I will say when, when we talk about nutrients, I mean, you obviously nutrients, you can divide them into two groups. We've got our macronutrients, which are fuel or repair and restore type nutrients, you know, proteins, fats, carbohydrates. And then we've got the micronutrients, the trace elements, the phytochemicals. With these, I, I always call them biochemical facilitators because they either make something happen or they make something that makes something happen. Yeah. And so many people overlook that. And it's just like, well, you know, maybe if you kind of get a little bit back to um, how the things that you're putting into your body on a day-to-day basis are influencing your biochemistry day after day, then you might see that there's actually a role that it can play in helping you get healthier. Yeah, totally. I agree. And I think it's something that that it's hard to talk about these days because you know there's there's a bit of a sort of um pushback against the idea of using food as a way of helping you feel better but it's undeniable that you can and it doesn't negate the fact that food has many other roles in our life yeah. um but as you've said quite simply it, it has a huge role in helping us to build a healthier body or conversely to to bring us to poorer health right yeah, I mean it's it's bizarre when when you kind of hear hear this this pushback against the idea of you know food as a therapeutic modality. I always bring up the example. It's like okay, so if if you walked into the doctor with hypertension and elevated cholesterol, and particularly elevated LDL cholesterol and high triglycerides and all of that kind of stuff, your doctor's not going to turn around and say absolutely carry on eating fry ups, go to the takeaway every single day. You know that, that doesn't matter. That one of the first things the doctor's going to tell you is look, cut down on your saturation fat, address your diet and lifestyle. They're saying that because we understand that certain diets can have certain impacts upon physiological processes. So with that kind of established, accepted attitude, it's quite bizarre that when the conversation gets a little bit broader, there's still, I mean, I have to admit, it's a very, very small subset of the medical community, but there's still that kind of subset there that pushes against it. And bizarrely, I mean, when I, when I was doing my postgrad at Surrey, most of the other students were either GPs or gastroenterologists because they were becoming acutely aware of the fact that like many of the things that are problematic in our health or certainly in pre-covid times at least but for the things that were big problematic issues in our in in the healthcare service were things that had a very strong lifestyle element to them and whilst they were able to certainly save lives and prolong life by by giving pharmaceutical interventions they realized it wasn't the whole picture and they realized they had to have a better understanding of lifestyle medicine so they could give their patient a better therapeutic outcome in the long term Mm, I completely agree. Well, you know, I do. That's exactly what we we talked about recently. And it's what drives my passion um, for helping people with this. Um, I think perhaps what might be a healthy way of looking at it is a huge understanding of how powerful it can be. Um, 
combined with the empathy of understanding that people's life circumstances are very unique and you know there's a certain subset of people who um, would really struggle to make changes whether it's because of their social circumstances their mental health their budget um, where they grew up where they were born you know all these sort of determinants of health that we can't control and we can acknowledge that of course there are lots of things yeah. that we can't control however I think it's also important to be able to really empower people as best we can within their circumstances so that they can feel better about the choices that they have, um, even when their choices are limited. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? A lot of that comes down to the the, the actual um, clinical relationship as well i mean there's 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 advice that you can give on a, on like a, a generic public health level and certainly a lot of the things that i would be talking about would be certainly at that particular level but then the whole patient-centered process that that comes from an actual clinical consultation is worlds apart and as you rightfully say that's when you're working with the individual where that person is at but i will say like i, I always think there's room for something there's always room for something, even if it's like, like you say, talking about the actual relationships with, with, with food and diet and that kind of stuff. Or even if budget's stretched, it's like, okay, well, what have you got? What have you got? I mean, I'll tell you a little story. I did a thing for ITV News um, maybe seven or eight years ago now. We we're working with these two girls that were living at the YMCA in Croydon. Now, these two girls, their combined weekly budget for food was 15 pounds between the two of them okay and they were becoming heavily reliant on you know a lot of the the kind of frozen food outlets and these kind of things they were they were spending all their money they realized that the, that they weren't necessarily nourishing themselves in the way that they that they should be they weren't feeling too good they couldn't have a social life they there was so much going on with these two young girls and one of the first things I did was sit down down to them and say, right, okay, how much do you know about what's available in your local area? How broadly do you look when you do your shopping? How often do you go to the market? And they said, what market? And it's a, a market smack bang in the middle of Croydon. So, so we literally went around the market and was like, okay, let's let's get some fresh produce. And we, you know, we got bags and bags and bags full of food. And they struggled to spend a tenner. And then we were cooking big vats of like a spinach and sweet potato curry and then freezing individual portions. They started to stockpile amazing healthy food. They started to have money left over because they had they 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 had more food on hand. And it was just looking at things a little bit differently, look thinking outside the box and you know, moving beyond the the, the typical kind of condition patterns that they were in. Wow. That's a really inspiring story. Thank you for sharing it. And um, yeah, I, I found something similar with some of my patients. You know, you don't have to necessarily have these big overhauls because you have to meet someone where they're at. Yes. And, you know, I've had elderly patients who have really struggled to cook. And in those scenarios, there are certain ready meal recommendations that I've been able to give them that had healthy whole food ingredients that I knew that, that were within their budget, but also meant that they didn't have to, you know, try to think too hard about you know, things that like cooking when they had really poor manual dexterity and they were struggling. Mm. So yeah, I think it really does depend on on that context as you've as you've so rightly said um and you know you've touched upon the fact that you help people who are you know really motivated to make some changes um and you know i'm, I'm really curious about how you help to create um a situation where people can change their circumstances and improve their health do you feel like it's important for someone to have clarity for example on 
what they want to change, um, and what kind of diet plan they want. Like, how do you kind of approach these conversations? Don't think I don't think I would have an expectation for the individual to know what sort of diet plan they want. I mean, that's 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 kind of assuming that they that they are able to make that kind of decision and choice and educated choice in the first place. For me, I I mean, I'll, I'll kind of sit down and try and get an idea of of what their needs are. You know, from a, from a clinician's point of view. Um, as as you rightly said, I work with where they're at, you know, and it really depends on what level of of um, resistance they have. Some people are just super open to change, and they're like, "I'll take on anything you say. Um, I'll make any of the changes you want me to make. Just tell me what to do." Then other people, they they know that they should, but they really struggle to give up their favorite things, and they're you know they're they're almost quite reluctant to give up their favorite things. In that context, I will say to people, "What do you enjoy eating? What's your favorite things?" Get an idea of what they enjoy and say, right, it's time to give your favourites a facelift. Oh, okay. I love it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, <laughs> if, if, if your favourite meal is pizza, amazing, let's make one. We'll get like a multi-grain bread mix from, from, the, from, the, from the local store that's, you know, a whole wheat version. Roll that out and create this incredible crust that isn't like eight inches thick of refined white flour. Actually, you know, it's got some fibre in it. And then we'll put some passata on it, maybe some wilted spinach and some red onion and, and don't go mental with the cheese. Just put like a nice thin layer, but loads of other interesting flavours in there. And it becomes a really got, healthy meal. Exactly. And they've still got, the thing is, they've still got the same culinary experience that they enjoy. And they're understanding why those changes are healthier. So, you know, you're kind of keeping them in a comfort zone. You're giving them a little bit of education. You're showing them how, and you're helping them to transition into better habits. For a lot of people, if you try and, if you try and just take everything away, then all of a sudden, like that, that inner recalcitrant teenager just pops up and starts rebelling and throwing the toys out the pram and it, and it just doesn't work. But if you actually show people that they can still, still have the food that they love, but just make it a little bit better, then from, certainly from a compliance point of view, I mean, like just as a clinician, like from a compliance point of view, it's much better. But from their point of view, the whole process of creating change is much more comfortable as well. Yeah, it becomes a process of collaboration, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's it's something that was really important to me as well when I was writing my book. Uh, I wanted to be able to provide comfort food, recipes that people might enjoy from childhood, things that they could adapt but would actually ha- have healthy whole grains, vegetables, you know, fruits, legumes, herbs and spices, nuts and seeds, rather than some of the less healthy versions. So, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, you know, for our listeners who um, are looking to make some changes, but they're not really sure where to start, um, would you have any sort of simple hints or tips that, that they could uh, be getting on with that they might be able to take away today? Change one thing. That's what I will say. Yeah. I will say like, rather than, I mean, the level of overwhelm that can come with thinking about completely overhauling your diet overnight, which to be honest, when, when you look at some of these fad diets and, and crazy like crash diet programs, it is like you're just changing everything. You're, spend, you're spending God knows how much on all sorts of all sorts of strange things that you're maybe not familiar with. You know, you're you're, you're having to reinvent yourself overnight. For most people, they can last four or five days, maybe a week, and then fall flat on their face. What I say to people is change one thing. Think of one single thing that you can change that you know that you can change. You know that will actually be comfortable for you, 
and implement it. This could be as simple as, okay, with with my lunch and dinner, I'm going to make sure I make a good dense side salad. Okay, I'm going to make sure that every day I just snack on fresh fruit instead of a chocolate bar. Okay, I'm going to make sure that at least one meal a day is a home-cooked meal. Whatever. Whatever you know that you can do, and start to implement it and just keep repeating it day after day after day until it becomes the norm, until you don't have to kind of think about it, until it's a normal pattern. Then keep doing that and then change one one other thing and then repeat that process. This may sound like baby steps, okay? But when you look back over six months, 12 months, you'll realize that you've progressed into a, a, a quite drastically different lifestyle, but you've done it in a way that is is comfortable. It's a comfortable transition. And you've been able to, to, to learn about what works for you along the way. I think that the other benefit of that is the benefit of feeling self-confidence and self-worth, because many of us think that if we don't completely overhaul our diet, that we are less than, that we have not enough willpower, yeah. uh, that we're so stupid, or that why can't we just do this, this and this? Whereas actually, you know, if you can just do one thing and be consistent, then you can start to f- actually trust yourself. You can start to feel good about the things that you're achieving and then move on from there. And I love that you said one more thing because that fits really nicely. There's a there's a behavioral change scientist, Professor B.J. Fogg from Stanford University. He says exactly the same thing, just one thing. And when you do that, it primes you for success. You can feel good about what you've done. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can be a very small shift, but it yes. begins that process of awareness, that process of discovery, and also enjoyment so that you can start to really enjoy the changes that you've uh, that you've managed to, yeah. to, to bring in rather than thinking, oh, no, I failed. I didn't go to the gym six times this week or whatever <laughs> it might be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, that's brilliant. Um, now, obviously you mentioned earlier your huge passion for food and you, you create such delicious recipes. Did that come from, you know, you know, your, your discovery of how food could nourish you from within, or is it something that you thought, well, actually I need to teach other people to get them in, sort of inspired. Like where did that sort of, um, passion for actually creating the food and becoming good at cooking come from? Because I've always loved food. That, that, that's literally what it boils down to. It's like eating. I've, yeah, I've, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And you know, I've always, I've always liked things that are a little bit different, a little bit exotic, playing with all sorts of weird and wonderful flavors. I had an amazing palate as a kid. You know, I wanted things with all sorts of different sauces and textures and all sorts of things going on before I was ten years old. So I was always like a, a, a real, a real foodie, and that that that's just kind of carried carried through for me. I mean, I, I just love to eat good food. So a lot of it actually came from when I decided that I was going to adopt a, a healthier way of eating. I needed to make sure that it was amazing for myself. Because yeah. trust me, if I thought that I was going to be in like, you know, lettuce and cardboard three times a day, I'd have been, I'd have been back down the, down the takeaway faster than you could blink, right? <laughs> so for me, I was like, I need to make this taste amazing. I need to make food that that is an incredible culinary experience, tastes awesome, that you really look forward to eating, and then by default does does you good as well. If you can if you can capture that, then you're never going to struggle again to stick to a healthy diet because the food's just going to be so good. Yeah, that's a great point. Exactly. You yeah. never want to go back then, do you? No. And you, no. you mentioned like you tried all the different diets under the sun. Would you say you're quite familiar with fad diets then? <laughs> um 
Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's some that really kind of stood out as fads that I never tried. I mean, I sort of it's mo- it was mostly like the the kind of well established long term different approaches i didn't go near some of the fad diets but yes i'm certainly familiar with a lot of them you know I've, the amount of people that i've seen in practice that have been on all sorts of weird and wonderful diets the conversations that i have the, the stuff that i've seen on social media i mean that that, that can be nothing short of mind-blowing i'm sure you you have the same experience where you see things and you're like where on earth has that come from <laughs> i do yeah. i do but i mean Let's try and tease this out a bit for our listeners because, you know, we're all part of the world. We all look online. We all look at magazines. Well, not all of us, but there's a general understanding that, you know, people should be a certain look or eating a certain thing. But what kind of red flags would alert somebody that that, that something is a fad and that, that it might be worth avoiding? I would say that if if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. It's it's like <laughs> if 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 a dietary approach is sold as being the answer to everything, as being some kind of dietary utopia, a panacea that is the answer to every single one of the world's woes, then run a mile. And there's a lot of that out there, and you know you 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 kind of find a lot of tribalism in the different dietary camps as well. So that I mean that follows through like, but you know if you if you put if you put like keto and plant based people together, there's some that will tear, tear shreds out of each other. So there's you know there's stuff like this going on all the time. But when when you hear something sold as being the answer to everything, then then smell a rat. That's generally yeah. generally what I say. I mean, and the thing is, the message has always been the same for for anyone that's studied nutrition. The message the message has been the same for decades. It's just like build your diet around fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, whole grains, some lean proteins if you decide you want to eat some animal protein, and that's it. A whole foods diet. A whole foods diet. That's always been that's always been the case. That always will be the case, but. It's not always headline worthy, is it? That's the no, problem. I think this is it. It doesn't create headlines. And yeah. it's true. And I was I was looking into the uh, True Health Initiative, which was set up by um, Dr. David Katz in the US. He's one of the founding members of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And he said the very same thing. He said, you know, we got together hundreds of uh, physicians and nutritionists across all different dietary proclivities and got them to essentially agree that you know, the bulk of the research suggests that a healthy whole foods diet with plenty of fruits and vegetables, water for um, hydration, nuts and seeds, herbs and spices, pulses, these are all great things for people's yeah. health and hopefully, essentially, a fairly uniform message. It is, but the crazy thing is, when I, I understand why the public often gets so confused because if you look, if you look at all the different diets that are out there, if you look, say, from from low carb and keto to macrobiotic to whatever else, all of them report these incredible transformations. All of them report these incredible improvements in health in so many different ways. And you see, like, I mean, anecdotal most of it, but you see these amazing stories of, um, you know, losing weight and getting more energy and recovering from certain things. Some people end up scratching their heads thinking, well, which is the right approach? Which do I do? They're drastically different from one another. What most people don't talk about is the fact that there's one unifying factor in every single one of those approaches. They all leave out the rubbish that's making us sick in the first place. They are all, I mean, obviously there's different ratios of macros and stuff like that, but they're all essentially moving people back to whole foods. 
Yeah, and that's I that's agree. really what it comes down to. It's like if you cut out the the highly processed, highly refined junk that is fueling the flame of disease in so many of us, and actually move towards a good whole foods diet in a way that you will enjoy and actually stick to, then you're that you're going to reap the benefits. Mm, I agree, and I think it, it is a good message to share so people can understand those basics and that people. People who are trained in nutrition, people who have been doing this for a long time, don't really disagree on that. So that's yeah, hopefully exactly. reassuring for people. Um, I'd love to hear more about your new book because I was absolutely thrilled to see that you had written a book about plant-based nutrition yeah. and how to get the most out of a plant-rich diet. Yes. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about where your passion for that came from and why you decided to write that book? Well, it's bizarre. I was um, I I was hundred percent plant based for twenty one years, and then through some weird twist of events, I ended up kind of veering away from that and um, yeah, experimenting with, with with other approaches, particularly you know sort of the very low carbon keto kind of approach, which for the first maybe eighteen months, two years, was great. And then things started to break down and go wrong. And now I'm I'm back to 100% plant based diet, and I I, I I feel I feel like I'm 16. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> like you know, just everything about it I love and remember why I loved it so much before. And um, you know, obviously I I wanted to to create a book around that. But also, so many of my of my followers had asked me to do one. So many of my followers are contacting me saying, "Look, I really want to adopt a plant based diet, but." I'm worried about some of the things that I could potentially get wrong, some of the things that could potentially be missing. I need to be aware of that. So I, I thought, well, I'm going to create a book that obviously sings the sings the praises of all of the the, the benefits that come from a plant based diet. But also, I've got to talk about long chain omega three fatty acids. I've got to talk about B twelve. I've got to talk about vitamin D. Some of these, some some of these kind of things as well, and so people understand it, so they can take the right steps to avoid some of those issues that could crop up, so that they can adopt a good whole food plant based diet and not have any kind of issues in the long term. And also, yeah. you know what? Because I've been creating that kind of food for such a long time, I knew that I was going to be able to to, to knock the recipes out of the park as well. I mean, sorry, I don't know I'm bigging myself up there. <laughs> no, but, that's fine. You can boast. You, you know, because I've been cooking that kind of stuff for such a long time. <laughs> I just I just know how to make that type of food really, really sing. And yeah, yeah it's 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 a book I'm very proud of. I think, you know, it's it's probably my favorite one yet. It's a brilliant book and I've really enjoyed looking at it and I'm looking forward to making some of the recipes from it. And I think it's it's a great thing because I suppose what you're saying really through all of this is, you know, we all go on our different journeys, but ultimately your uh, passion really relies on evidence. It relies on your training. It relies yeah. on on long-term health and in order to you know succeed with long-term health it's important to eat a lot more plants and there's yeah. no getting away from that really yeah. um and so yeah I, I think that i think that yes the power of anecdote is very real we're humans we love a story and in my book i share some patient stories to help people understand the very real uh, real life human benefits from eating more plants but also you know 
I share 600 references because like you, I'm really interested in helping people to understand it's not a fad if, you know, the the broad um, spectrum of evidence from various different studies show that it is a healthy pattern and a healthy lifestyle. So Mm. I was absolutely thrilled to see it. And I love the way that you split the book up into different sections you know, based on how to cook this great food, how to make it easy, how to help it fit into your life, because that's what we all want. We want to make it simple, right? Exactly. I mean, I I don't like, well, I like spending hours in the kitchen. I don't often get that luxury because, you know, we're, we're all running around like, like crazy things all of the time. Modern life is pretty, is, is pretty bad. Obviously it's slowed down a little bit for some of us lately, but there's always there's always time pressures. There's always um, pressures and juggling careers and family and all that kind of stuff. It's got to be easy, yeah. you know. To to um, to quote Tony Robbins, complexity is the enemy of execution. Okay, mm, if you make it quote. difficult, if it's good at it, yeah, gotta love a bit of Tony. <laughs> gotta love a bit of Tony. Um, I do. I, if, I do love Tony Robbins. Oh, he's, yeah. he's like the forefather of self-help. <laughs> yeah, that's like one person I'd love to have love, like a dinner party with. That'd be amazing. Um, but if, yeah, if it is really, really complicated, if someone's got to spend hours in the kitchen, if they've got to get all sorts of weird and wonderful ingredients, I mean, you know, you look at, you look at some of these health books and it's like, you know, Wonga Wonga berries and organic biodynamic unicorn from a wizard in Nottingham. <laughs> some of it is so ridiculous. I mean, like you know, you, with with some of the weird trends that have come like over the years, it automatically makes it unaccessible for so many people, and that's that's why some people recoil from the idea of adopting a healthier diet. But if you show people that look, it's the simplest thing in the world. If you can have a whole chapter on one pot wonders. Yeah. Like set and forget, put everything in there, let it do its thing, go and go and do whatever else you want to do for 25 minutes, come back and it's done. You can't get easier than that. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, I'm just thinking about Tony Robbins, actually, now that you've mentioned him. You know, he does these courses and as part of his courses, he talks a lot about nutrition, actually, um, and fueling your body right so you can achieve the goals that you want in your life. And he shared some of his personal story. He, he I believe has acromegaly. And so he, for a long time, had been looking for ways to optimize his long-term health. He was eating a lot of fish at one point to the to the stage where he actually developed heavy metal toxicity because he, he was having so much fish. And we know now that the oceans are not necessarily as uh, free of pollutants as they once were. Um, and now he really heavily talks about the benefits of plants. And you know, he is plant-based himself, which is, which is lovely. Um, but I think that really sort of uh, spoke to me because I realized that, you know, he's somebody who always looks to reach the optimal in terms of achievement and giving to others and being of service and fueling your body right. And so I found it really interesting that he also talks about the power of food and nutrition to do that as a nice yeah. base from which you can then achieve whatever goals you have. And, you know, from you and your experience, like you I find it so important to share some of those nutritional benefits from your training. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about the nutritional side of, of um, your passion and why, why it's a great idea to eat more plants? Wow. I mean, you, you could look at every single body system and you could find a benefit potentially. I mean, let's, let's just, let's just look at, look at the di- digestive health to start with. One of the things we, we know that a plant abundant diet provides such a whole broad spectrum of different types of dietary fibers you know some that are soluble some that are insoluble some that 
actually work as a food source for the gut flora. So one of the things that, that is going to benefit your health in so many different ways is nurturing your gut flora. That that bacterial colony that, that lives in the gut that has that symbiotic relationship with us. These things, I mean, the roles that they play are almost mind-blowing. I mean, for, for a start, at a very basic level, they provide a physical barrier against attack from, from potentially path, um, pathogenic invaders that have found their way in via the digestive tract. But then they influence what the rest of the immune system is doing. There's actually a communication between this bacteria and the immune system via the lymphatics within the gut and this the whole range of different chemical messengers that, that, that get produced in that interaction that regulates immune processes. It's like bacteria in your gut can regulate what a white blood cell in your big toe is doing via a chemical message via this, this kind that. of interaction <laughs> yeah it's crazy and then yeah. you know then look into the cardiovascular system with the cardiovascular system i mean like taking fats and everything out of the equation for the minute one of the things that that you find in abundance in a plant-based diet is a group of phytochemicals called polyphenols polyphenols are often color pigments so you they're the things that give um blackberries and blueberries their their dark purple color they're the thing that give extra virgin olive oil that deep vivid green color they're very very they're found very broadly in the plant kingdom and they've got some really interesting activities on cardiovascular health one of the things that we understand about them now i mean a lot of this has come from the university of reading via uh, professor jeremy spencer i don't know if you've seen any of his work but one of the things that we realize now is that on the inside of our blood vessels, there's like a, a skin that lines the inside, okay? So the vessel obviously being like a tube that's made out of muscle, and on the inside, there's a skin that lines it called the endothelium. This isn't just a skin. This isn't just like a film. This is a highly biologically active tissue that regulates many aspects of circulatory function or like hemodynamics. One of the things that, that we know about the, the polyphenols, the flavonoids, is that they can get taken up by the endothelial cells, the cells that make up this lining. When the endothelial cells take up these polyphenols, the polyphenols cause almost like a metabolic distress response within those cells. And what that does is cause those cells to secrete a gas called nitric oxide. This is something that they do naturally anyway, but it dramatically stimulates the production and the release of nitric oxide. And that has two benefits. Firstly, as I said, it's a muscular tube. So the nitric oxide gas will leave the endothelial cells and move into the musculature of the vessel wall and cause the muscle fibers to relax. As the muscle fibers relax, that causes the vessel to dilate. As the vessel dilates, simple physics kicks in. The volume of fluid that's in there hasn't changed, but the vessel gets bigger, so the pressure against the vessel wall is reduced. And then the second benefit of nitric oxide is it actually strengthens the bonds between endothelial cells and makes the endothelium much more resilient to damage. Endothelial damage is the first part of the whole um pathophysiological process of cardiovascular disease. It's, it's damage to the endothelium and all of the kind of inflammatory cascades and everything that follows that essentially causes atheroma, the actual um, fatty plaques. plaques within blood vessels. So just by increasing your intake of polyphenols, I mean, looking at the work from, from the University of Reading, they were, they were giving people increasing doses of polyphenols from berries and from dark chocolate 
and they were uh, measuring what's called flow-mediated dilatation using like a, an ultrasound on the brachial artery. And they were showing the more polyphenols were coming in, the more there was this increase in blood flow and this dilation of the blood vessels via that nitric oxide expression. So the take-home there is they can play a role in managing blood pressure and also reducing risk of endothelial damage or vascular damage. So that's, you know, that's just two things. And then, you know, the sheer density of micronutrients that are in there, you kind of think if someone's moving from a diet of highly processed junk food to a whole foods plant-based diet, the sheer amount of micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, trace elements, et cetera, that they're getting in every single meal is going to be absolutely mind-boggling. So they're going to feel more energetic. They're going to, you know, everything's just going to start functioning a bit better because there's more nutrients there. Um, Skin health. Oh, this is a big one. This is, I mean, this is obviously one of my, one of my real obsessions because I got into nutrition because I had skin issues. One of the things that you find abundantly in a plant-based diet is a group of phytochemicals called carotenoids. These give yellow and orange and some of the lighter reds in, in food. So think sweet potatoes, mangoes, carrots, red peppers, those kinds of things. Carotenoids, they're a type of antioxidant, but they're a fat-soluble antioxidant. You always hear people going on about antioxidants for the skin, but most of the time the stuff they're talking about has got no relevance to the skin. Thousands of different types of antioxidants, but in general, you can put antioxidants into two distinct groups. You've got water-soluble, like vitamin C. That means it delivers its benefit within systemic circulation over a limited period of time. Then it's metabolized and excreted. It's gone. It's done. Then you've got the fat-soluble antioxidants, like the carotenoids. The fat-soluble ones, they don't stay in circulation very long. By their very nature, they want to migrate into fatty tissues. Second to the brain, the most abundant fatty tissue in the body is the subcutaneous layer of the skin. And within the subcutaneous layer, you've got very important structures like collagen and elastin, which is like that that kind of crisscross lattice of protein fibers that gives skin its structural integrity. And then you've also got structures like the pilosebaceous unit, which is where the hair follicle and the oil-producing gland meet. That is the area that flares up in an acne infection, for example. The thing is, because that because those compounds can actually move into that into that tissue, they can accumulate there quite easily. And there's even a condition that you find people that are really into juicing and stuff like that called hyperkeratinemia, which is where the skin takes on an orange tone. Maybe that explains Love Island. I don't know. But, um, you know, it kind of, you know, it's testament to, to how effectively these things will actually start to accumulate in that layer. When they accumulate there, they can deliver a localized antioxidant activity. There's loads of data out there that's shown that it can influence things like, you know, how susceptible the skin is to burning. That doesn't mean that, like, you know, eat a carrot, don't wear sunscreen. That's not, that's not what it says at all. Um, but it can offer this localized protection to these things like the collagen and elastin fibers that are susceptible to oxidative damage. So, you know, that's just picking three things out of the sky. And you can you can see already the abundance of different benefits that, that can be derived from it. I absolutely love that monologue. Dale Pinnock, you are a real powerhouse of knowledge and information. And just to hear you talking about the blood vessels got me so excited. And then you started talking about the skin. And I love the conversation around carotenoids and, you know, why they are helpful. You know, just to try and break it down in a simpler way as possible. You know, if you can make the blood vessels more supple, then your blood pressure goes down and you're able to have a more uh, responsive vascular system. 
Yeah. If you have lots of uh, fruits and vegetables, then your skin can also retain its suppleness and uh, its ability to withstand trauma. So yeah, it's it's just a lovely way of of helping us to really understand why plants do us good. Um, and you know, it kind of got my mind wandering a little bit as well because you mentioned about the vascular benefits of plants, and then that study in Reading. There was another study that I read where they gave the delegates or the you know the participants, I should say. They were young men, and I think they they gave them uh, like milkshakes to see what happened in the short term to their blood vessels and to the and to the um, the uh, the cholesterol in their in their blood that was circulating, and they found that the, the shape actually changed. You know, of of the actual you know the, the molecules of cholesterol, the shape of them changed, and they became more spiky just for maybe you know a short time, maybe half an hour, an hour after having that very sugary, fatty. You know, you milkshake. Know I would say, I guess, the, the the sugar is probably one of the biggest aggravating factors there, because one of the things that we need to need to understand about cholesterol is that even if the number's high, that doesn't always mean that it's a bad thing. I mean, certainly, what what a clinician would look at with a full lipid panel to really understand what's going on with with that patient, you'd need to know particle size as well. And this is where things get really funky. You can you can have a raised LDL, but if it's a large fluffy size, basically where it's like like a, a little globular cloud moving through the cardiovascular system, it's not really gonna gonna have that much of an issue. There's much not, damage. Yeah, it's not gonna it's not gonna do a lot. It's just gonna go and do its thing and it will get recycled eventually. But then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got small dense LDL. Small dense LDL is highly atherogenic, meaning it can trigger atheroma. It will only trigger atheroma in, you know, in relation to an inflammatory episode within the endothelium. The two things have got to meet. But so, what, so for those of you who don't know, what Dale's talking about is when you have a heart attack or when you have damage to your vessels, you get you get bits of inflammation there to start with, and then you get the plaques forming, and then you get the blockages, and then you get things like heart attacks and strokes. Yeah. So just to, to take it back a notch slightly. Yeah, but- sorry, I'll, I'll rein it in a little bit. <laughs> No, but so so you're saying about how the shape matters, the size and the shape. The size, yeah, yeah. So yeah. so these the small dense LDL particles generally tend to tend to be expressed more when you've got when you've got insulin spikes, and yeah. the insulin spikes come from the refined the refined sugars, and um, you know those are abundant in processed foods. But again, moving over to a whole food plant based diet that's so high in fiber, even if it's not plant based, a whole foods diet. Let's just let's take that step further because you know everyone got their preferences just a whole foods diet where your carbohydrate choices are coming from high fiber low glycemic sources you're not going to get that blood sugar roller coaster and that that massive expression of insulin um 50 times a day is not going to be there it's just so fascinating so thank you that that was a really great sort of deep dive into what that was happens a good little in the soapbox body. moment wasn't it yeah. i love that yeah that was great um now we are going to have to draw things a little bit to a close but i thought before we do it would be lovely to hear a little bit more about your online nutrition program yes because many people want to learn more about nutrition but they don't know where to go for a trustworthy source of information so tell us all about your online program yeah, so basically, I developed this course for the people that didn't necessarily want to go to university and do um, and do like three, four years full time. It's for people that wanted a really deep understanding that maybe want to work in coaching roles. Some some of the graduates have been um, working in care homes and actually devising menus around some of the needs that the the, the residents there had. I mean, it's it's very very diverse. It 
is 100% online. It has now become the most highly accredited online nutrition course of its type in the world on the planet now. It's, it took a long time and lots of changing and tweaking and working with different accrediting bodies. And we've got such diverse accreditation. It's a recognized qualification in 37 countries now. Um, and it's You must it's, be so proud. I am, yeah. It's, it's, it's like my baby. It's kind of like it started <laughs> off as this kind of strange, scraggly little creature that's grown into into like this, <laughs> this, this beautiful being. And um, yeah, it's the thing is, it's open to all levels. So it doesn't matter whether you've got a science background. To give you an idea, the students on, on the course, everything from high school students to um, you know, retired teachers to doctors to NHS dietitians to people that are just interested in nutrition and just want to understand it at a deep level. There's no prerequisite. It doesn't matter where what your background is. You can get every, any bit of support that you want. You just pick up the phone and, and have support and we'll walk you through every single stage. There is quite, um, you know, it is very academic. We, you know, we ex- expect students to do a lot of their own research and to reference things properly and to make sure they're using primary sources rather than, you know, secondary sources of research. So there is that expectation, but we guide you all through it. And it's really taking the science of nutrition at quite a deep level, but then sh- then showing you how that fits potentially into disease process or disease management, and then taking that to what happens in the kitchen so that you get all that science and then understand how to put that into breakfast, lunch, dinner, how to actually build meal plans and dietary protocols around that information. Amazing. So if you want to do a deep dive and learn more about nutrition and how to help others with it, then the online course is really valuable. But if you want to just eat great food, then of course, the books will be more for you. Yes. Wonderful. Well, Dale, you know, we're going to have to draw this to a close. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. I really enjoy hearing you talk about nutrition. Uh, your passion shines through and as does your knowledge. And um, yeah, I want to say huge, huge thank you for sharing your time with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's always good to talk. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today for what was an incredibly fascinating conversation with Dale Pinnock. We talked about all sorts of things, nutrition, and went on a real deep dive, which I felt was particularly interesting. If you liked it, please do share with us that you did. Please do also check out the Holland and Barrett website where you can catch the video version of the podcast um, at hollandandbarrett.com. And of course, you can catch this podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Do join us again next time for another great conversation with special expert guests helping us to incorporate wellness into our day. All views and experiences talked about on this podcast are those of our guests and do not reflect the views of Holland and Barrett.